to Russian oligarchs in not a homogeneous united group of businesses. They are very heterogeneous, they compete with each other and they have different political ties. Welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast, and thanks for tuning in. My name is Christopher Starke, and today we are continuing our special series featuring experts who can shed some light on the current developments in Ukraine. As we are in an anti-corruption podcast, of course, we will focus on how the terrible events relate to issues of corruption, money laundering, and so on. We have more interviews lined up this week and next week, and as things are changing so rapidly on the ground, we will air them as soon as we recorded and edited them. So make sure to check your podcast feed regularly. Today, we welcome Ina Melnikovska. She is an assistant professor in comparative political economy at the political science department at Central European University. She is an expert on state business relations and crony capitalism, and she's currently working on a book titled Global Money, Local Politics, which focuses on the relationship between big businesses and politics in Russia and Ukraine. I learned a lot from listening to this episode, and we hope that you will too. So, without further ado, over to the interview with Ina Melnikovska, interviewed by Matthew Stevenson. Greetings, welcome to Kickback. Uh, this is Matthew Stevenson. Ina, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule during what I know is a, a hard time. Uh, emotionally, as well as a, a busy time to be able to share your insights and observations with uh, our listeners today. Thank you for inviting me, Matthew. Perhaps before we turn to things that are going on in the world right now and how they relate to your research, it would be great if you could say a little bit more so that our listeners understand how you came to this topic and this set of topics and uh, what the direction of your research uh, looks like. What are the kinds of things that you're interested in? What, have, what are some of the preliminary observations and findings that, that you've reached? Okay, so let me start probably uh, saying a few words about my general background. Uh, I'm originally from the city of Chorkil, which is uh, in Ternopil region in western part of Ukraine. Uh, this summer, Cherkiv uh, was going to celebrate uh, its 500th anniversary of the founding. Uh, I mentioned this detail just uh, because uh, it's a small piece of empirical evidence of how Russian President Putin miscalculates and manipulates the history when he claims Ukraine was founded by uh, Vladimir Lenin. So uh, I studied in Ternopil, which is also in Ukraine, but also in Ukraine's capital, Kiev. And after my doctoral studies in Germany and postdoctoral stay in the US, I'm currently in Vienna. So actually, I joined Central European University when it was still in Budapest, but due to attacks uh, by illiberal government of Viktor Orban, uh, the university have uh, had to move now to Vienna, Austria. So my, uh, the idea for this book was actually inspired by the events around Orange Revolution, uh, when there were a lot, so you remember it was uh, one of the uh, democratic movements in Ukraine against 
audit elections. But at that moment, what I found very puzzling was that civil society in Ukraine was not only supported by the population, but uh, a lot of financial media resources came from Ukrainian businesses uh, in those times. And so uh, I was uh, sort of puzzled by this political behavior of Ukrainian business and tried to elaborate more on this. So what are the um, driving forces of their political strategies and so on. So my current book, which you already mentioned and introduced a little bit, deals with a relatively new development, which have already happened over several years. It is uh, the integration of Ukrainian, but also Russian big business, I mean, big business holdings uh, into the global finance. And I study the ways how they integrate uh, both through um, kind of legal or open activities when they offer uh, the shares of their companies on at international stay uh, exchanges, yes, uh, like London Talk Exchange, but also some kind of more hidden illegal integration uh, into these global financial flows related to offshoreization of um, uh, corporate activities. And uh, my uh, main focus is to elaborate what are the effects of this global capital mobility and offshoreization of their corporate activities on business behavior, in particular on business political behavior, and how this eventually shapes and changed Russia's and Ukraine's political economic systems of uh, crony capitalism, as we know it. So. So great. So I want to talk about both Ukraine and Russia, and obviously they're interdependent. Uh, you can't completely separate them, but it does seem like, and I'm a total outsider to this. Uh, you know, I, I know a little bit about it, just someone who studies corruption. I've spent a little bit of time thinking about Ukraine uh, in my capacity as a board member for TI Ukraine TI's Ukraine chapter, but like I'm not an expert in this the way you are. But my my impression is that the nature of crony capitalism in Ukraine and Russia seems in many ways quite different, even though there are some common themes and the relationship with politics seems in, in some ways uh, quite different. And I might be interested in asking you to highlight some of those differences, but starting with uh, Ukraine. So you just said you're interested in seeing how these changes in offshoreization, financialization, various other kinds of developments affect the behavior of big business or the business elites uh, with respect to politics. So, so say a little bit more about how, what specifically does that mean in Ukraine? What have the changes been? What, what have been the developments with respect to how big business in Ukraine relates to um, uh, the political system? Okay, so... Um... Probably we should understand that um, big business in Ukraine uh, has a sort of contingent effect on Ukrainian politics. In sometimes it is an evil because it deteriorates uh, democratizing and uh, liberalizing reforms in Ukraine. And it is a driving force, I would say, and the reason why we have so endemic systemic corruption, which is how I was uh, strongly uh, a kind of under attack, both from civil society, uh, from external donors, uh, and from, from the side of Ukrainian population in the recent years. So there are 
uh, a lot of achievements in fighting corruption in Ukraine in the recent years. Uh, and we have uh, many attempts of so-called de-oligarchization, also with a sort of limited uh, success. Um, but what is probably also necessary to understand that chronic capitalism in the uh, organizational form at, as it is in Ukraine, which constitute a, a kind of a competitive nature between competitive system of many uh, business groups that have uh, their ties to different political forces that diversify their political ties. And through this uh, competition diversification, we uh, have something like political pluralism that results also in sort of democracy by default. So it's not uh, democracy that we know from uh, Western liberal societies, but this is democracy pluralism that is created through competition between different um, uh, business groups that uh, support different uh, um, political parties, uh, support probably also different non-governmental organization and also ensure a certain pluralism of the media. It's very interesting. This seems very consistent with what Oksana Hus, who uh, was on a previous episode of, of the, the Kickback podcast series, was saying. So was saying something similar and was contrasting Ukraine and the so-called oligarchs in Ukraine. I, I know that, that terminology can sometimes be problematic, but, but compared Ukraine and, and Russia, where in Russia, uh, her take, and I think this sounds consistent with what you're saying, basically, Putin has his allies and they are kind of, if, if you're not on team Putin, then you don't get to be a rich oligarch in, in Russia. Um, and so the Russian oligarchy really is, has kind of a symbiotic relationship with a quasi authoritarian or, or fully authoritarian political system where in Ukraine, you know, it's, it's certainly not perfect. Um, there's a, there's, it's oligarchic, but it's a kind of competitive oligarchy. And so you do get a form of political competition, even though you still get a domination of the political system by business elites. Uh, they're not all on the same page. They support different politicians. They support different factions and they need to compete for votes because Ukraine remains uh, a, a, essentially a political democracy, however, an imperfect and partial one. Is that summary? Do you, would you agree with that? Does, if I characterize the position accurately, or is there anything you'd, you'd correct or, or qualify? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so both countries have a lot of similarities and uh, they all uh, can, so they both, Russia and Ukraine, can be assigned to the family of countries that suffers from chronic capitalism. Uh, but at the same time, there are decisive uh, differences. So chronic capitalism in Ukraine builds on these uh, relations to the states that help to uh, ensure certain security of property rights and uh, provide them with the sources of uh, rent seeking. So it, it's different from what we know also in the Western countries. It's not competitive advantage or not the effective rule of law that usually can secure the property rights. So ties, proximity to the state actors matters uh, here uh, immensely. But at the same time, uh, through this diversification, connections uh, to different political actors, uh, the system of chronic capitalism in Ukraine involves several power centers and they compete with each other uh, without the possibility to mo monopolize the power, to create uh, a regime. 
uh, Russian case of chronic capitalism is on opposite. Yes, yeah? so uh, this system is uh, strongly hierarchical with the top president uh, um, that holds all the powers, monopolize all the powers in this informal system of mutually beneficial exchange between political actors and business. Uh, and so one should also understand that business elites are not uh, those ones who are just dominated and are captured to a certain extent with, uh, by the state. Uh, they are complicit of the state. They are allies that contribute to persistence and consolidation of Putin's powers uh, because they directly benefit uh, from uh, this system. I want to get back to Russia in just a second, but let's stick with Ukraine for a moment. I want to ask you, in the context of what you just said about the nature of the kind of competitive oligarchy uh, or a competitive crony capitalism that characterized Ukrainian politics, I want to ask you about President Zelensky. It's a little bit tricky to talk now about President Zelensky and everything that happened before last week, because I am one of many people who's uh, just extraordinarily impressed by his leadership, um, his inspirational uh, conduct. It's kind of amazing that somebody who, you know, a few years ago was known as an actor and a comedian. It's as if Jerry Seinfeld turned into Winston Churchill, and I don't know how that happened. So, so it's, it's amazing. But I do think there's been a conversation, there's been a debate about President Zelensky's administration and his agenda prior to the events of the war, particularly with respect to um, the fight against corruption and the fight against crony capitalism. So uh, I don't need to tell you this, but just for the benefit our, of our listeners, and you can correct me if I'm uh, surely oversimplifying, President Zelensky ran for president predominantly on a kind of anti-corruption platform. Um, Servant to the People was the name of his TV show, but he chose that as the name of his political party, but to get across a particular message. And many Ukrainians were very frustrated, very upset with uh, the domination of the country's economy and politics by economic elites and the perception, frankly, an accurate perception, that a lot of people in Ukraine were getting extraordinarily rich, not necessarily because they had the most business acumen or the best ideas, but because they had the connections and because they were able to you know, enrich themselves at public expense through, through corrupt means. So that was like many politicians over the last decade, and beyond, but this has been a real pattern in the last decade. We see these politicians making kind of populist appeals, emphasizing the need to clean up the system and to fight corruption. So again, as an outsider to uh, Ukraine, but as someone who knows people who are experts, many of whom are themselves Ukrainian, others who study it, there's been a bit of a debate about Zelensky and the sincerity and efficacy of his anti-corruption program I'll, I'll sketch out what I take as the polar positions, and the truth is, of course, often somewhere in between, but my impression is that one view says that he is uh, genuine, he is sincere, he really is trying to transition Ukraine away from the system of, of crony capitalism, competitive or otherwise. He's, he's, you know, he's a political novice, he makes mistakes, he's operating in a system where he's constrained, he needs legislative majorities, he needs support, so he can't do everything that you know, an anti-corruption activist might do if they were king and waved a magic wand, but really um, he's trying to make progress and that he was making really significant progress. Indeed, some have suggested, I'd be interested in your perspective on this as well in a moment, that it's precisely that success that might've been one of the things that made Putin nervous or upset or, or to perceive Ukraine as a threat because there were genuine, genuine developments away from a system dominated by party capitalism. 
the um, more negative view, and I, I don't think anyone, I, I, at least no one in the in the circles that I talk to, has like really negative views of Zelensky as himself personally corrupt or personally an oligarch. But there is a view, kind of in keeping with what you were just saying about competitive oligarchy, that he's very dependent on his own set of oligarchs. Maybe he was taking on one set of oligarchs, but the person who owned the television station that featured his program was an early and powerful political backer, and Zelensky has treated him awfully gently. There are other people who are thought to be close to him uh, that where he hasn't been nearly as aggressive at cracking down on their uh, crony capitalism, their alleged corruption. And that the, mo the most skeptical, the most cynical view would pick up on what you said before and say, what we're really seeing is not a genuine liberalization cleanup of the Ukrainian system. What we're seeing is one faction in the oligarchic struggle managed to prevail over a different faction in the oligarchic struggle. And again, none of this would be, even if this were true, I think many people who have that position would still admire President Zelensky's heroism in the current circumstance. But you're, you're an expert on this, whereas I'm not. Um, having sketched out those kind of polar positions, like what would be your take on what Zelensky and his administration represented with respect to is this, how much movement are we generally seeing, genuinely seeing towards changing the way the Ukrainian system away from competitive oligarchy towards something that more genuinely represents a cleaner, though of course not perfectly clean, pluralistic democracy, and how much of it represents a kind of extension of the kind of ongoing competitive oligarchy that you were describing. So uh, you described already uh, with uh, many details what was going on in uh, the recent years since uh, Zelensky became president on the agenda of uh, de-oligarchization. Uh, he came uh, on this agenda uh, to power, to presidential office. It was one of his main slogans, but there were a lot of a kind of suspicions there that his ties to uh, one of Ukrainian ol oligarchs, Ihor Kolomoisky group would uh, be uh, visible and will influence his policies after he became the president. What we kind of saw um, at the end uh, through the recent years was a kind of uh, mixture of, uh, of going in both directions. So we still have these ideas of de-oligarchization uh, and we had even laws that damaged this Igor Kolomoisky group. And so one could say that uh, the, uh, the connections between uh, President Zelensky and this business group was not so strong. Or, uh, But from the other point of view, we know that uh, it was done under uh, immense pressure from civil society and uh, external um, donors. And um, so... Uh, it, so the picture is not uh, black and white, it's rather gray. So uh, there is some progress in uh, dealing with oligarchs, but uh, oligarchic system is still there. And uh, it's good because it's still competitive. So I think that uh, in case of such competitive oligarchy, it's very difficult to get rid of it. Rather, what happens when people say that we fight oligarchs, that the system became to be uh, monopolized 
influenced by one business group, which eventually could uh, lead to authoritarian, more authoritarian regime. So, um, and many feared that this new agenda of de-oligarchization would rather mean that this a kind of competitive advantage of uh, oligarchic system in Ukraine will be targeted with the aim to monopolize uh, the powers by one of these business groups that is represented by Zelensky. Uh, we, we see indeed a kind of a group of people that came to power with Zelensky and we have um, some reports of investigative journalists they showed that there is a lot of private interest and businesses going around this being uh, in power, not he uh, personally, but uh, a kind of his friends uh, benefited, pro uh, so make profits, rents out of being in power and close to the president. Um, so I would say this was a, just another chapter of Ukrainian competitive oligarchy with some actors coming in and trying to reap the benefits of being in power, while other business actors trying to keep their influence. Um, and uh, the president himself is probably trying to kind of to play their arbiter uh, using stick and carrots methods, uh, uh, punishing someone who wanted to probably to, to, to grasp too much and uh, trying to negotiate with those uh, who were already uh, influential in Ukrainian politics. Let me, so that's very helpful and adds a lot of nuance and, and, and um, better understanding of the complexity of, of what's going on in Ukraine with respect to President Zelensky. Let me ask a related question that's uh, been a bit on my mind and I've seen other people talk about as well. And that's, um, to the extent that you feel like you can answer this question, I know it might be a little bit outside the, the scope of your research, the extent to which in the context of the current crisis and, and Russia's invasion of, of uh, I mean, Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. So every time I say the invasion of Ukraine, I think I need to like the, the new, the, the most recent invasion of Ukraine. Um, to what extent was the progress that Ukraine was making towards a more pluralistic and less corrupt system part of what Putin and his inner circle perceived as a threat? And just to put that in context, every, I mean, a lot of people are trying to figure out why did this happen and why did this happen now? And nobody knows for sure. Uh, I think one thing we've learned about Putin in the last little while is it's very difficult to try to figure out what's going on in his head. But I would say I've heard um, three main streams of, uh, of kind of ideas about motivation. Uh, if we put aside the idea that Putin is just losing his mind as being crazy, which is not completely off the table. One um, is a kind of romantic Russia as a great power, restore the Russian empire. This is really not about so much politics, economic security. This is about, there's an opportunity to go down in the history books as the person who you know, reestablished the greatness uh, of Russia and is like the news are. So that's one possibility. A second possibility is Russia perceived rightly or wrongly Ukraine is a military security threat. There's been a lot of discussion about NATO expansion. Many people today in the United States and elsewhere are saying, you know, of course, it's not exactly the fault of the West. Putin, Putin was the one who was invaded, but this was predictable because as soon as there were all these serious discussions about Ukraine joining NATO, then, you know, it was it was highly likely that Russia would not be able to tolerate that and is, is invading Ukraine um, again because of a perceived security threat. The third 
explanation that I've heard, but one that relates most closely to the work that you've done and to the theme of this podcast is that you know, even if Ukraine was never a serious military security threat, wasn't likely to join NATO in the first place and wouldn't have substantially changed the security situation, even if it had, um, Ukraine and the way Ukraine was changing, partly under Zelensky, but partly because of other developments, civil society, more competition, et cetera, was a kind of political or cultural threat uh, to Russia. And in particular, to focus on these issues that we're talking about, the idea that you could have a less corrupt system with genuine competition uh, that wasn't dominated by the elite and so on and so forth, where the, the, the leaders didn't just steal from the citizens, was threatening to a regime that was also very much based on crony capitalism, where there were so many ties, historical and, and so forth. So I'm intrigued by this third hypothesis. I have a kind of parochial interest in it because like this is what I study and all of us academics need to be careful to be on guard against like thinking the thing that we happen to know about is the most important thing in the world. But again, you're, you're much more of an expert than I am. Is there anything to that? Like, is there, is there, is it, was there any kind of serious respect in which efforts to clean up Ukraine, to fight corruption, to fight crony capitalists and so forth um, posed a sufficient threat or challenge to the Putin regime that it might have actually contributed to Putin's aggression against Ukraine? Um, I actually think that it's most plausible explanation of uh, what we observe in uh, as regards Russian foreign policy, Russian invasion in Ukraine. Uh, and uh, it's the rational ones that, or, or explanations that can explain the uh, rationale of Russian president and elites. Uh, because it would point to, or probably we need to uh, kind of to pay more uh, attention to uh, how Putin's regime legitimate its power, and uh, this legitimation was, especially in the recent years, it was not based on a sort of performance record in terms of economic development or a kind of functional capacities of the state. Uh, bureaucracy, but rather it was based on uh, a sort of imagine, imagined threat. Yes, so threat uh, that is coming not so much. Yes, th there was this line with NATO, uh, Western threats, but the threat coming from instability, uh, instability that uh, Ukraine was framed to exemplify, instability that was a kind of connected to democratization processes. Uh, and so, and we also have a sort of parallel discourse uh, in Russia uh, that was promoted uh, by Russian elites that Ukraine and Russia are very similar. So, and so the possible conclusions that Russian people could uh, uh, draw is that if Ukraine uh, managed successfully to go through the process of democratization, then probably this democratization is not, is not so scary. It can lead to some positive developments to success uh, because we know from a kind of um, surveys uh, of Russian public that uh, many are afraid or skeptical about uh, potential powers of democratization processes to change anything, to be for good. And so Ukraine's could have been inspiring example for, for Russian uh, population, I think. It's fascinating. Let, let's, I, I want to talk more about Russia, actually. Maybe we'll come talk, back and talk a little more about Ukraine in a moment if we have time, but, but let's shift the focus to Russia. Um, we already talked a little bit about this when you were contrasting 
the how crony capitalism and oligarchy operates in Ukraine from the way that it operates in Russia, and in particular how in Russia it's much it's it's not competitive. There's like one faction, it's the Putin faction. And if you're not part of that faction, we saw this happening, you know, a decade ago where where powerful, wealthy people who cross Putin would be crushed basically in one one way or another, uh, and, and they would lose out their privileges. So let me ask you a little bit more about the nature of the relationship. And let me try to frame it in the context of the current crisis and the imposition of sanctions against these, these so-called oligarchs. Uh, and let me, again, I'm, I, I have a tendency, I realize, to oversimplify, but just to frame the question, I've heard two contrasting perspectives on the relationship between Russia's economic elite uh, and, the, the, and Putin's administration um, and, and inner circle one of which involves a kind of mutual dependency uh, or interaction and the other in which the dependency really runs in one direction. So one view, the mutual interdependence view is that Putin allows these guys to get really rich through favorable government policies, through looking the other way when they do things that are not uh, consistent with the law and so on and so forth. And in return, they provide things that the regime needs with respect to political support, with respect to uh, economic support of various kinds and and so forth. Um, The contrasting view, and again, I realize it's it's an oversimplification, but the contrasting view is the dependency really runs in one direction and the oligarchs depend on the regime. Uh, Putin is not nearly as dependent on them. And that although we talk casually in the West about you know, the oligarchy and the elite in Russia as if they were the same. In fact, they're not the same. And the elite that keeps Putin in power is not, they're not all these people that we read about in the newspapers who own football clubs and mansions and, and uh, these fancy properties. Um, and the reason this seems relevant right now is if the former view is closer to the truth, then these targeted sanctions focused on the oligarchs and other sanctions that, that hurt their economic position have a greater chance of eventually yielding policy changes by the regime. I think that's very much the hope. If the latter view is closer to true, then it might still be entirely justified to impose targeted sanctions on people who have amassed enormous wealth corruptly and are supporting a corrupt regime, but we shouldn't be too hopeful that making their lives difficult, freezing their accounts, not letting their yachts you know, stop in various ports in the West is going to have any kind of at least short-term or even medium-term impact on the regime because they need Putin, Putin doesn't need them. So again, as an outsider, I've seen these contrasting perspectives, I've seen op-eds, I've read things and so forth, but but you're actually writing a book on crony capitalism in Russia, so I feel like you might be in a better position to, to offer, again, a, maybe a more nuanced view than this oversimplified binary suggests, but you see what I'm getting at. You see what I'm asking. What, what, what are your thoughts on this? Actually, both perspectives uh, are true to a certain extent. Uh, what we probably need to start with to understand that Russian oligarchs is not a homogeneous united group of businesses. Uh, they are very heterogeneous. They compete with each other and they have different uh, Uh, political ties. So some of them are more closer to President Putin, while the other one uh, are probably more far away from uh, the political inner circle of the president uh, or have very limited 
channels of influence on these policies. Uh, so let's stop to treat them as a one group, they are not. Uh, and uh, this means that indeed uh, we, if we want to simplify, we have some groups of oligarchs that can influence the uh, uh, Russian politics agenda, although some observers argue that uh, to a less and lesser extent in uh, the recent years, uh, as uh, uh, the inner circle uh, become to be uh, more narrow and narrow, and is also to a certain extent dominated by security forces. Uh, those oligarchs, uh, so they are targeted already with financial sanctions, even before the current events. So some of them enjoys a, a kind of uh, are targeted by uh, US sanctions already uh, since a couple of years. And uh, indeed, the, a kind of the rationale of this financial and economic sanctions is to make them to change the uh, Russia's Russian foreign policy. Uh, but uh, the question is, do they really, do this particular group really want to change? Uh, it seems to me not, uh, because they, are, they cannot go against this system of chronic capitalism in Russia, because they are a kind of complicit, they are beneficial, mutually beneficial partners in this symbiosis of state and business. So they even uh, benefit directly from Russian aggressive policies because they get uh, more uh, defense procurement deals. They have also some infrastructural project financed by Russian uh, budget. So uh, uh, the war is also the source of uh, enrichment for them. And uh, so they, uh, it, it's hard to expect that they will cut the branch uh, on which they sit. The other issue, uh, and it relates probably to those one who probably uh, would not support uh, Russian aggressive uh, policies, but they have just uh, little resources. Uh, they cannot change this policy because they are too far from this inner circle. And uh, so accordingly, their leverage is uh, very limited. So um, they do not have a great support in the population. And uh, they actually then prefer to, um, to stick to be the ally of regime, mono, uh, mobilizing support uh, for this regime, even among their employees. So, the other issue probably in relation to financial sanctions to understand that uh, this mutual symbiosis that you mentioned uh, before, uh, it does not mean that there is no a kind of internal competition or attempts of both partners, the government and the business to become more independent, more autonomous. Uh, so uh, in uh, research, we have uh, the term of embedded autonomy. Yes, so it's like you, you are still in relations and you benefit from those relations, but you try to, to be more independent. And uh, in case of Russian business, uh, a sort of attempt to become independent was through this integration into fin financial flows, global financial flows. But uh, what kind of independence was it? So they use this integration to uh, diffuse their rent-seeking sources, their rent-seeking channels, to probably, to a certain extent, uh, modernize their uh, 
activities via enterprises to attract uh, alternative sources of investment uh, and also to find uh, alternative sources of uh, property rights protection yes uh, so that they uh, they practically outsource uh, the effective rule of law <laughs> within the country they uh, benefited from a protection of the state, which could also be uh, kind of aggressive uh, if uh, business would behave politically not in line with uh, the uh, governmental policies. Uh, so um, this autonomy attempts uh, were there, but they were probably not so much successful or they uh, did not cut the ties or make these businesses completely independent from the state. And so now back to financial sanctions to understand the effects under this kind of uh, situation, because what the sanction practically aim is to cut or, or to a certain extent limit this uh, financial uh, integration uh, of Russian businesses. This would mean that in short term, I, I'm afraid uh, these Russian businesses would seek the compensation from Russian state for their losses on international financial markets. Um, so it, there will be a sort of rally around the flag effect, yes, so where, where they will try to show their um, uh, kind of uh, support of Russian government. Uh, we we, we uh, saw in recent days uh, a couple of declarations by Russian oligarchs about uh, their stand in this conflict, uh, uh, war practically uh, of Russia against Ukraine. But if you look at uh, a kind of framing, how they formulate, what kind of words they use, so it's usually asking for peace uh, and not blaming a Russian government for invasion. So I rarely saw that they even took the word invasion in their mouth. So I rather would uh, kind of um, interpret these words uh, as seeking for comp compensation for the government um, for their losses on international financial markets. But it does not mean that financial sanctions are ineffective. In long term, when the resources be, uh, of Russian state um, are going to become uh, scarce, decrease, then this uh, sort of competition for compensation could result in more tense, uh, probably in defections of business elites against Putin regime. But this is a sort of long-term perspective uh, or mid-term perspective, and it means that uh, sanctions once introduced need to stay for long to be effective in the way that they were um, drafted. Yeah. That's fascinating. I'm glad you said what you said at the end, because what I was wondering as you were speaking is whether this implies that the uh, targeted sanctions approach that the West has been adopted, I mean, they're not just targeted sanctions, but the sanctions targeted these individual, very wealthy, probably corrupt um, Russian business elites would be misguided uh, and, and even counterproductive. And it sounds like your answer to that uh, concern is, is, is no, as long as they stay in place. But it also sounds like this idea that I think some people have that if you crack down on the super rich Russians, Putin depends on them, they're gonna either depose him or get him in a room and say, look, you, you gotta stop this, we're gonna withdraw our support for you. That's a fantasy 
that maybe some in the West might have, but that that really doesn't that really misunderstands the basic dynamic in in play here. Is that that's a fair characterization? Yeah. Are there differences uh, in the or are there are there changes that you would like to see to the West's uh, policy on sanctions or its posture towards uh, individual Russian uh, business or political elites? Generally, I mean, we're, we're recording this conversation on uh, March 2nd, yesterday evening, uh, U.S. time, President Biden gave a State of the Union address in which he included uh, some language about how the U.S. was going to go further to crack down on Russian elites and their property and their yachts and their private planes and so forth. I think you mentioned creating a special task force. As we've been discussing, there have been a variety of targeted individual sanctions. Um, as you know, so again, someone who's studied very carefully the relationship between business and politics in Russia, and who understands uh, crony capitalism and the way that these oligarch systems work, uh, what advice, if any, would you have for the people in the Biden administration, in the UK, in the EU, in, in the other countries that are working on this issue with respect to the design of sanctions or the things that are not being done that should be done, or the things that are being done that, that shouldn't be done or should be changed? Um, so I probably have like two big recommendations. The first one uh, would be connected to what I just said, that financial or economic sanctions could be um, seen as a long-term instrument of uh, US or EU policies and not as a short-term reaction. Uh, that uh, there should not be a sort of expectation gap on them being uh, effective immediately because the effect could be even reverse uh, that what is intended. Um, but nevertheless, uh, they will be effective in the long term. And this sanction at the current moment to kind of to speed up the effects should be um, as broad as possible as comprehensive as possible, because uh, they will target not only uh, Russian oligarchs, but also they will diminish the capacities of uh, Russian budget, Russian state to compensate them for their loses. Uh, and so comprehensive sanctions will work on both sides, on the, uh, will harm both the state and business elites, eventually uh, leading to the conflict between them. Uh, the other uh, issue that I would rather <laughs> kind of point to that, especially here in Europe, uh, I, I am at the moment in Germany, uh, there are these discussions that changed recently, but they are still in some gr uh, groups of societies, political establishment, that business is business and politics is, is politics. Uh, so we need to understand that business, economic or financial relations is a part of politics and uh, um, they constitute, they can constitute uh, a security threat, but the good news uh, that they also offer certain opportunities, certain tools that can be used to uh, ensure security. Yes, so uh, there are a lot of instruments uh, there uh, on the side of uh, US um, uh, FATCO, on uh, the side of European Union, we have a lot of recent initiatives uh, of anti-corruption. Uh, these tools were rather seen through the lens of a sort of developmental policies. And uh, I need 
a kind of my suggestion would be to uh, increasingly look at them at uh, security dimensions. Yeah. Fascinating. Let me let me ask you. Uh, we're going to have to wrap in a moment, but I just want to follow up your your most recent response with what I recognize is a completely unfair question. Um, but I want to get us. I want to get a sense of what you mean when you talk about long term. You talk about short term versus long term. Um, there's, you know, there are cultural stereotypes which are unfair about the East and West measuring time in different increments. Like for Russia, like a century might be long term, where in the United States, like a year and a half might be considered the long term. And I'm not asking you to to give me a day, you know, 42 months and three weeks. Like no. But when you say that things like these sanctions on individuals, a uh, crackdown on corrupt Russian officials or oligarchs storing their money abroad or being able to access Western financial systems will um, not likely have significant political effects in the short term, may even have negative political effects in the short term, but in the long term are likely to create a competition over resources and, and more conflict within the regime and may lead to uh, uh, some kind of meaningful change. What do you have in mind when you talk about this long term? Are you talking about a year or two from now? Or are you talking about like five or 10 years from now? Uh, I think we need to decide depending or a kind of uh, with the background, uh, what are our goals? And our goals is uh, a kind of restorement of, uh, of liberal order. Yes. Yeah? So, uh, and uh, a kind of, we need to keep those sanctions to apply those uh, tools of coercion uh, until this goal is reached. Yes. So I would uh, make it dependent on uh, on this fulfillment of what we want, because my fear is that as soon as Russian leadership would demonstrate a, a slight hope of readiness to negotiate, uh, then uh, there will be voices in the West that would suggest we need to lift those sanctions. And I would say that just uh, sitting or be even ready to sit uh, at the negotiation table is not enough to uh, uh, kind of to lift uh, uh, and to um, diminish the powers of these restrictions. You need a kind of to achieve the uh, final goal, the re restoration of liberal order, the respect for international law before you will be ready to uh, a kind of to, to draw back on these instruments. Uh, this is so how long it takes, it's difficult to um, to predict really. Uh, I hope sooner than later, because at the moment, uh, um, despite the courageous uh, bravery uh, that Ukrainian army and people and Ukrainian uh, government are demonstrating, uh, the forces are far from equal, yes, and so um, Ukrainians count every day uh, that they survive. So I hope uh, these financial and economic sanctions combined with directed, uh, more uh, a kind of direct support, also including military one. So probably the other idea that uh, financial and economic sanction should be only a part of uh, Western reaction, and they cannot replace the need uh, for more direct military action. That's, yeah, I think that's that's got to be right. Clearly, the, the current crisis, uh, I mean, it's a military conflict. And so a lot of what will happen will be determined on the um, 
battlefield. Again, we're having this conversation on March 2nd. Uh, this interview probably won't be available to our listeners for a few days, and things are so uh, uncertain that I always am a little bit nervous imagining like, what will the world look like when our listeners are finally hearing our, our voices. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it, I, I suppose one way to think about this, because what you, you said is there's the, there's the immediate conflict on, on the battlefield where it's absolutely essential that the heroic Ukrainian um, military and civilian population resist this onslaught as long as possible, precisely because if uh, economic pressure is going to have an effect, if political pressure is going to have an effect, um, there needs to be time for that. And you know, I think that we're all hopeful. And it's been very, very useful hearing you explain, uh, give a more nuanced picture of the relationship between business and politics, both in Ukraine and in Russia, and how that maybe helps uh, enrich our understanding of the context in which this conflict, this military conflict, political conflict, economic conflict is, is taking place. Um, so I want to thank you very much for taking the time to appear on the, on the podcast to share those insights. I also want to acknowledge again that I know that this is, um, this is not, these are not just abstract academic questions or intellectual puzzles. I know that you are from Ukraine, that you have family and friends who are still there. Um, I don't have nearly those deep connections, although I do know people who are, who are there. Um, and so, uh, you know, our, our, our thoughts are with them. I hope they're safe and remain so. But again, um, thank you. Thank you very much. I think this is very useful. And I hope that you are right that the tools at the disposal of Western governments will be used effectively uh, to achieve some kind of uh, longer term uh, progress after one hopes the, the, sh- the shooting and the bombing um, ceases swiftly. So again, Ina Novoskovska, uh, uh, thank you so much for appearing today on the Kickback Podcast. Thank you, Martin. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. As always, you can use the timestamps in the show notes to navigate through the episode. We have more episodes coming up. If you want to support us, please use your contacts and spread this episode to your professional and private contact. Never underestimate the snowballing effect this might have. To stay updated, follow us on Twitter under at KickbackGAP. To me, it is incredible to see all the current efforts by the anti-corruption community and we already see the effect of it. There are more and more media reports coming out of seized assets of individuals on the sanction list in foreign jurisdictions. Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Köbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpers and me, Christopher Starke, with assistance by Amy Assad and music by Kehan Golkar. Stay safe everyone, have a nice weekend, until next time.